Good morning. It's good to be here again. I'm Brian Brooks. I'm here on behalf of Katie Blevins in this case about life insurance. That's my topic this week. This is one of those cases that has a situation that you think just never happens. Dr. Travis Richardson applied for a life insurance policy in January of 2021, filled out the application, went through the physical, did all of those things, and then the policy was issued on March 11th of 2021. March 12th, 2021, Dr. Richardson happened to ask his insurance agent, when does this become, when does coverage go into effect? And the insurance agent said, today, if you die today, you'll be covered. Now, nobody thought Dr. Travis Richardson was going to die today, and he didn't. He died three days later. In that interim time, Pacific Life Insurance Company had sent a package of information by FedEx to the Champion Agency, which did back office support for Dr. Richardson's uh, uh, insurance agent, dealing with all kinds of technicalities on delivery and acceptance and correction of policy issues. And so we're here today because Pacific Life has denied coverage for a policy that Dr. Richardson had paid for before he died. This reminds me that insurance coverage is one of those things where you don't always have it even if you've paid for it. And it's one of the very few things in life that, life that seem to be that way. I will cut straight to the point about where we're going. The policy itself says, in the, under a heading of policy specification, this is the summary of coverages effective on the policy date. The policy itself says the policy date is March 11th, 2021. Doesn't say anything about delivery, doesn't say anything about acceptance, doesn't say anything about anything else. It just says that the summary of coverages that are effective on the policy date. Then the policy date is further defined as uh, the policy specifications and means the date the policy and associated riders become effective. Our position, and now, now granted, there are other parts of the application, there are other parts of the policy, there are other parts of this set of mailings that was sent to the champion agency on March 11th by Federal Express that have other things that you have to do for the policy to be effective and pay a death benefit. But under Arkansas law, our point is you can't give us with one part of the policy and take us away with another part of the policy and then get summary judgment uh, in, in a case over whether there was coverage under the policy. Isn't there in the policy, though, a difference between effective and enforce? That specific life's point, and, and, they, they, and, and, it hinge, and, and the argument, as I understand it, hinges on this phrase. A policy in force means a policy is in effect and provides a death benefit. Pacific Life says that is a signal to anybody reading the policy that a policy can be in effect but not have a death benefit to it. I'm a reasonably bright guy. I'm not a genius, but I'm middle and smart. I read that language and it says to me just as easily that when a policy is in effect, it pays a death benefit. The, the language is circular. And when I worked my way through all of this policy language, I kept coming back to the fact that I am promised in the policy language that the policy is in effect and pays a death benefit on the policy date. And does, 
Go ahead. Do you agree that the policy has to be delivered either to be in effect or in force? I don't agree with that because of, of, of this particular language in the policy. It defines when the death benefit is available as, as of the effective date. I agree that Pacific Life could make that a condition. I don't agree that it effectively did so because of this policy language. Yes, Your Honor. My question really is, if you read the application in conjunction with the uh, policy, you do have some other information that might lead a reasonable person to reach a different conclusion than you just did. And that information relates to the temporary insuring agreement, you know, which basically provides that if you pay some money an estimated premium cost at the time that you file the application, temporary insurance coverage is in place. And that temporary insurance coverage is a little bit different than the, than the policy coverage, but it stays in force until such time uh, as the policy is delivered. And if you read that in conjunction with the language which you say is circular and ambiguous, um, it does sort of explain the process. Now, can you rely on the, the application language to interpret the policy, or is that verboten? I think under the Arkansas cases that we have cited, when the policy is very clearly, this is when the policy is in effect, and there is other language in the policy or the application, the application becoming part of the policy by incorporation that contradicts that language, you have a question of fact, either Either if, if so it's not amenable to uh, summary judgment at that point. That's a fact question for the ultimate finder. That's correct. And I spent a lot of time in the brief because it was an interesting topic to me. I don't know if it was interesting to you, but it was interesting to me about what happens when you have this question. Number one is you can't get summary judgment in favor of an insurance company when you have this sort of contradictory language fighting against itself. That's the first point. The second point is, okay, so what do you do? Well, if both sides come to the court with extrinsic evidence indicating what the, the contradictory language means, then it's a question of fact for the jury under the Arkansas cases. If they don't come to to the court with, with extrinsic evidence about what these two phrases mean. The, the bad phrase for the insured goes away, and the insured is eligible for summary judgment or judgment as a matter of law because you read away the contradictory language. You're about to ask me a question. No, I'm just thinking. But, but you, you, you did read that I was thinking, but go ahead. So, so I, I, I think that if, if this particular policy language was was not in the policy itself I would be I would not be here today quite frankly but but I, I believe that that when you look at the policy itself and the contradictory terms you get to the Smith case that we have cited in the brief and talked so much about in the brief where you had an uninsured motorist policy that said you're insured if you're whether you're riding in a car or not and then another phrase within the policy in the next section of the policy that said you're insured if you're riding in a car and the court said you can't have the, those fight with each other this language fights with itself too for the very same reason and you can't have summary judgment on on that basis that is the 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 crux of the position that that we bring before you and and the error that Judge Moody made in, in, 
in granting summary judgment was not recognizing that point. I think I want to hit preservation for just a moment because Pacific Life says I didn't bring this, or we, we didn't bring this argument up at trial. I think that's at the trial court level. I, I disagree with that. We cited in the reply brief document 88, pages 7 through 12, when this particular argument over the ambiguity of, of the policy language was, uh, was discussed for the trial court's edification. And then I noticed when I was pre preparing for, or, for argument that the trial court actually ruled on it. In addendum page 5, he, he writes, first she argues that the policy is ambiguous as certain terms are not defined, including delivered, accepted, effective, and in effect, making the policy circular, vague, ambiguous, and contradictory. That sounds a lot like what I just said. And then he says, viewing the facts most favorably to her, she argues, the policy can be read in force as of the policy date. So preservation, I think we're, we're, we're good on. The, the argument is preserved for, for appellate review. And that's important to me because I actually write a little bit about preservation and I was a little bit worried with myself when I got the brief and I was told I didn't preserve, this was not a preserved argument. I think, so that is our, our, our primary point. That, that, to me, is what this case primarily turns on. And I think the, for all of the reasons that we've stated, Judge Moody got this wrong, and then we should go back for a trial on the merits. If there's extrinsic evidence of these terms, if there is not, then Ms. Blevins would be entitled to summary judgment when she makes that motion. But she has never made that motion. I want to touch for a very brief period of time on the bad faith issue. I've got to tell you, this has never been, this is something that is, I've never seen happen before, where the trial court said, file an amended complaint by a certain date, and then the an amended complaint was filed by that certain date, and then it was struck for being filed. Now, I know that there are other arms and legs to that particular problem where, where, Judge Moody said, I didn't expect that much detail, but the order didn't say, don't file a detailed amended complaint. File an amended complaint, fleshing out your bad faith arguments. And the lawyers did. Then they were punished for, for doing it because there's not enough time to get ready for trial. Then the trial date got moved by four months, but the, the complaint stayed struck. That, to me, is an abuse of discretion. To, to tell somebody to do something, they do it, and then you sanction them for doing it seems to me to be a little beyond the pale. Moving to the merits of, of the bad faith, I don't want to over-egg my pudding here. Either complaint, the, amend, the first amended or the second amended, alleges essentially that Pacific Life said, uh-oh, when it got this situation and realized it had a, a, a way to maneuver around it and ignored this policy effective date language and conjured up everything else to get around paying this, this $4.8 million policy. At the pleading stage, that is sufficient enough to survive a motion to dismiss under Arkansas's bad faith law. And so the, the whole thing should be reversed and sent back to the trial court for, for further proceedings. I'm right at my rebuttal time. I'll take my rest of my time on rebuttal. You may. 
Mr. Nyman. Thank you, Judge Benton, and may it please the court, John Nyman here for Pacific Life today. Uh, the contractual obligation that uh, we've been talking about for the last 12 minutes uh, wasn't formed uh, at the time of Dr. Richardson's death for two interrelated reasons, only one of which Mr. Brooks has touched on. Uh, the one that he did touch on uh, is that the policy wasn't uh, delivered uh, to or accepted by uh, Dr. Richardson uh, before he passed away. Uh, the second uh, reason that uh, Mr. Brooks did not discuss is that Pacific Life had issued uh, this policy subject only to uh, amendments, uh, which Dr. Richardson was required to agree to uh, in order to form a full uh, contract that would, that would give rise to this obligation. Uh, without delivery, uh, there was no contract, and without that signature on the amendment, uh, there was no contract either. So for that reason, uh, there was no uh, valid claim for breach of contract here. There also was no valid claim well, for bad faith. Well, the amendment's all trivial, counsel. I, I disagree, uh, Judge Benton, uh, for uh, at least uh, a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, uh, Judge Erickson has touched on the declarations to the application uh, uh, or, or, uh, to the, the application itself, which, to be clear, uh, is absolutely part of uh, the contract here. Declaration 15 uh, expressly says so. Then the policy, uh, once, it's, it, once it is issued, says that the application is part of the contract. But Declaration 1, uh, which... Uh, I think it's on page 722 of the appendix, uh, says that uh, if Pacific Life makes any changes to the application, uh, those need to be sent to Dr. Richardson, uh, and Dr. Richardson needs to sign on uh, to those things. So there, there's a contractual uh, agreement that that's the way things are going to work, and there is no exception for minor, trivial things. But maybe more importantly, Judge Benton, I don't think that these things are minor uh, or trivial. Uh, one is the birth date, uh, which, of course, it, we're talking about a difference of 17 days here and not a difference of years, but uh, the birth date is a pretty critical uh, aspect of a, a, a life insurance policy. Uh, also, the zip code was wrong here, uh, and these are things that uh, it's within certainly Pacific Life's prerogative to try to get right uh, on the front end of things. Uh, things go wrong in insurance policy administration if an insurance company simply makes assumptions about what the insured uh, wanted. So it certainly can't be faulted here. Pacific Life can't be faulted for uh, noticing that there were problems with the application uh, that basically was uh, Dr. Richardson's uh, offer to Pacific Life here and saying to Pacific Life, or saying to Dr. Richardson, uh, before uh, we issue this policy, before uh, it is to go into force, uh, you need to um, amend your application or agree to these amendments to uh, your application. Okay. This is Arkansas law. Do you think the Arkansas Supreme Court would say they're trivial? And don't affect the contract? No, I think the Arkansas Supreme Court... Okay, what's your best case on that? Well, I, 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 don't, ha I, I don't have a particular case that, de that deals with these specific issues, but I think the Arkansas Supreme Court uh, in, uh, applies uh, and interprets contracts as they are written. Uh, Declaration 1 to the application here makes it crystal clear uh, that if there are changes to the application, they need to be signed on to uh, by the insured before you can have a contract, before a contractual obligation is formed, I believe the Arkansas Supreme Court would uh, apply the unambiguous terms of Declaration 1 in that manner and say that there was no contract here 
if only because of the amendment issue. I also think it would say that this policy wasn't delivered as well and that there was a delivery requirement under the contract. So I'll turn back to that issue, which was the principal focus of Mr. Brooks's argument. This contract is not ambiguous as to whether delivery is required before death benefits are payable. The opposing counsel's argument to the contrary is based on an untenable interpretation of a single part of the policy, but that's not how contract interpretation works in Arkansas, and that's not the way that Arkansas applies insurance principles. The right place to start is with the application. As Judge Erickson suggested, several parts of the application really can't be read in any other way as making crystal clear that you have to have delivery of the contract before it is enforced. We have emphasized Declaration 4, which is the provision that says coverage will take effect when the policy is delivered, only if at that time each proposed insured is alive and all answers in this application are still true and complete. But frankly, as I think Judge Erickson may have been suggesting earlier, even clearer evidence is in the following declaration, Declaration 5, which deals with these TIAs, this temporary insuring agreement. That provision says that if the insured has given money with the application and received the TIA and the coverage amount under the application is greater than the coverage amount under the TIA, then if the proposed insured dies before delivery, they're going to get the amount associated with the TIA, not the amount associated with the death benefit under the policy. No real way to read that language as saying anything other than that before a death benefit is payable, you absolutely have to have delivery. So at the other end of the contract, as I said before, this application really, I think it's helpful to view it as the offer on this contract. The other end of the contract we have here is really more of a counteroffer in light of the amendments that are at issue, but that's the policy that goes out on March 11th. In that policy, there are three critical pieces of language confirming what the application has already said. The first is that the summary description provides on page 841 of the appendix that provided the policy is in force, a death benefit is payable as described in the policy. So it's crystal clear from there that a death benefit is payable only provided that the policy is in force. A second critical bit of textual evidence is in the definitions section on page 844, which says that in force means that a policy is in effect and provides a death benefit on the insured. Judge Kobes had asked about that particular definition. I think it's very instructive because if Mr. Brooks' interpretation of the contract were right, the policy simply would have read in force means a policy is in effect. The need for the additional language regarding the death benefit being provided shows that there's a difference between in force and in effect. In effect means something in addition to in force. A third bit of textual evidence is on page 845 of the appendix. That's in the death benefit section. And it says that this policy is in force as of the policy date subject to the acceptance of the, your acceptance I should say, meaning the insured's acceptance of the delivered policy and payment of the initial premium. All that language lines up with what the application says. So what do we have that Mr. Brooks says contradicts that language or at least renders it ambiguous? It's really 
a single page of the policy, uh, one you'll find on uh, appendix uh, page 793. Uh, but that uh, provision sets out what uh, the policy refers to as a summary of coverages that are effective on the policy date. It is a uh, little, mo little more than a table. Uh, it's not uh, full of, of text or explanation. Uh, and that language says nothing about the conditions uh, that under which a death benefit uh, will be payable. Uh, any reasonable insured who, who is reviewing uh, that page, the summary of the coverages, uh, will know that they've got to read more uh, if they want to figure out the, the conditions under which uh, a death benefit is payable. And really, uh, the, the, the first page of the policy specifies uh, that the death benefit is payable as set forth in, in the provisions regarding uh, the death benefit itself. Uh, so I, I don't think the Arkansas Supreme Court would look at this, at this matter and say, well, this, uh, this creates ambiguity uh, in, any, in any sense. Uh, the, the Smith case, uh, which Mr. Brooks has relied on, dealt with a, a, a quite a different issue. There you have uh, a, a, an insurance policy that was contradictory in terms of the way it described coverage. Uh, in, uh, in one particular provision, it said uh, the, the following persons basically are covered or the following situations are covered, and those include in a parenthetical uh, situations whether or not the insured uh, was driving their car. Uh, then in the, in the other provision, uh, the, the policy, the, those, those particular poli policy provisions read in isolation might suggest that, uh, in fact, the person would not be covered if they were not in their car. The Arkansas Supreme Court said that's a contradiction. We cannot, we cannot reconcile those provisions, uh, and therefore we've got to uh, adopt the interpretation that favors the insured. We don't have that situation here because there isn't a contradiction between uh, the, the language we see in this table on page 793, the summary of coverages, and the provisions setting forth how a death benefit uh, is, is payable. Uh, the death benefit uh, provisions are more specific, naturally, and uh, I don't think it's reasonable to read this contract as, as suggesting that uh, based on what you see on page 793 in this table, that, that uh, you have a death benefit no matter what. Uh, certainly there will be conditions attached to that, and those will be set forth in the unambiguous language, uh, not only the policy uh, provisions, but also the application that preceded it. I, one point that uh, Mr. Brooks has not touched upon is what I've understood the, uh, the, the, uh, Ms. Blevins' secondary argument regarding delivery to be. And, and frankly, as, as the district court said, uh, it, uh, it, it understood the, the issues in front of it to largely be about whether this policy was actually delivered, not whether delivery is a requirement under uh, the policy. Uh, the district court rightly found uh, that this policy wasn't uh, delivered. Uh, I think that that conclusion flows ineluctably from binding Arkansas Supreme Court decisions. Uh, we have to go pretty far back uh, to uh, point to those decisions, but that's because uh, the requirement of delivery is, uh, is, uh, is that well established in Arkansas uh, insurance law. So uh, a case called Clark versus First Colony from 1924 uh, quite clearly says that the, uh, the, the mere uh, transmission of a policy to uh, the agent uh, with further conditions uh, on, on delivery 
does not amount to delivery uh, for purposes of Arkansas law. And I, I, I misspoke. That, that was um, uh, not Clark versus First Colony. Clark versus First Colony was the Arkansas Court of Appeals decision applying the 1920s era decision in New York Life uh, versus uh, Mason, I, I believe. But both of those decisions stand for the proposition that, uh, at least in the circumstances we have here, where this policy was uploaded to a, an internet portal that was designed, uh, it, no one seems to disagree, solely for Mr. Brashear's reference purposes. Uh, uh, those decisions established, even though there was no internet then and no uh, portal then, uh, that the mere uploading of that document or the, more, the mere transmission to the agent, more to the point, uh, cannot be delivery for these purposes. So you know, I assume that the reason why uh, the plaintiffs have taken a, a, a pretty dramatically different approach to the delivery, uh, view, delivery issue uh, on appeal is that those two decisions, Clark and uh, New York Life, foreclose uh, in, in, this, in, in this case any argument that delivery actually occurred through uh, the, the, the portal. Uh, turning to bad faith, uh, the fact that there is no coverage uh, under, um, uh, under the policy uh, for these two independent reasons means that there's no bad faith claim. But even if everything I've said about the contract is wrong, I'd like to underscore uh, that the district court's decision as to bad faith uh, ought to be affirmed. Uh, the, the, the first, uh, the, the first uh, uh, counterclaim in this case, the original counterclaim in this case, made no allegations of bad faith other than to simply say that the plaintiff or the defendant in this declaration, declaratory judgment action uh, disagreed with the insurance company's ad administration and, and interpretation of the policy. Arkansas law makes clear uh, that that's not sufficient to allege uh, a bad faith claim. Uh, so the only question, I suppose, is whether uh, the district court is to be uh, held to have abused its discretion by uh, saying that, uh, that Ms. Blevins went too far in this amended complaint uh, in, in adding 30 new paragraphs in response to the district court's order. I think, I think it's very uh, difficult and untenable, really, to suggest that the, the, the district court abused its discretion in those circumstances for a couple of reasons. One is the district court sua sponte uh, granted uh, uh, Ms. Blevins the ability to amend uh, the complaint uh, in response to a motion Ms. Blevins had filed that didn't seek uh, that relief. Ms. Blevins instead sought to amend uh, her response to uh, Pacific Life's motion uh, to strike. Uh, uh, so the, the district court made that decision on the assumption that the amended complaint uh, was simply going to uh, comport with the relatively limited uh, uh, changes that were in the response. Uh, instead, the amended complaint came back with 30 new paragraphs, making all sorts of additional uh, new allegations of bad faith. For example, uh, Ms. Blevins contended for the first time in the case uh, that Pacific Life had violated insurance industry standards, had violated an internal code of conduct, uh, had engaged in a pattern and practice of wrongly uh, denying uh, benefits in these circumstances and the like. Uh, the district court rightly said uh, that given that we were one day away from the summary judgment deadline, given that discovery had long ago passed, that its initial decision, its initial sua sponte decision to uh, allow the filing of an amended complaint for different reasons is one that it, can, that it wanted to uh, reconsider. Uh, that decision was by no means an abuse, of, uh, an abuse of discretion. For all these reasons, we'd ask the court to affirm. Thank you for the argument, Mr. Nyman. Back to Mr. Brooks. I think I can cover all of this in three minutes. My colleague talks faster than I hear sometimes, but I'll, tr I'll try to get through everything. 
we never get to these two contract positions that Pacific Life advances when we focus on the language that, that, that I have pointed the court toward. And to me, summary of coverage is effective on the policy date that then lists the coverages including the death benefit. And policy date is shown in the policy specifications and means the policy date and associated riders become effective. And enforce means, means a policy is in effect and provides a death benefit altogether lead me, a, a person of reasonable intelligence, to believe that, that if I have a policy that tells me all of those things on March 11th and I die on March 12th, I'm covered. That's what all of that language says. I think that is certainly a logical, reasonable reading of the language. And when you put that in contrast with all of those other provisions, they contradict one another. And under Arkansas law, that means we have a case for the jury. I've been criticized about my interpretation of the policy. And I've criticized Pacific Life about their interpretation of the policy. That, to me, says, folks, we need to have a jury decide what this means. That's, that's what juries are for, to sort out things like this when, when these types of provisions contradict one another in an insurance policy. Uh, now, on, on the trivial things issue, I've looked. I'm not the world's greatest researcher, but I'm pretty good. And I haven't found anything quite like this in Arkansas law, where Arkansas has dealt with delivery conditions that have things like my birthday is listed as the 13th instead of the 30th, and my zip code is listed as, listed as 72506 when it's 72501, and that sort of thing. There, there doesn't appear to be any Arkansas case out there. I think that is trivial. I think that has nothing to do with whether there should be coverage in this case, which is spoken to by the fact that all Pacific Life required was accept these changes. It was, it was really no big deal. Um, for all of these, oh, oh, on, on the bad faith, I, I still have never seen a situation where a district court ordered somebody to do something and then got the, the person did it and they got in trouble for doing it. That to me seems to be an abuse of discretion on its face. For all of these reasons, we ask that the case be reversed. Thank you. Thank you both counsel for the argument. Case number 23-2596 is submitted for decision by the court. Uh,